Welcome back to Unprecedential, AEI's podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. When the Supreme Court wrapped up its annual work in July, it closed out the year with a number of highly controversial cases, as always. Issues ranging from gender identity and sexual orientation, civil rights, to abortion, to everything else, it seems, that's in controversy these days. Now the court's returning for its next year's work. And so to discuss the court's place in American government and politics, I'm so glad to be joined by my friend, Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we've come a long way since Austin, Texas. <laughs> That's right. Uh, da- listeners, the live uh, show, yeah. In case you're not already acquainted with Dahlia's work, she's senior <laughs> editor at Slate, where she's been covering the court and American constitutionalism and law since 1999. And she also hosts Slate's Amicus podcast. Dahlia is referring to a conference, I guess that was two years ago, the Slate live live podcast taping in Austin, Texas at the Tribune Fest. And we were there to talk about the Supreme Court the weekend that the Senate Judiciary Committee sent the Kavanaugh nomination back for further investigation, right? I think it was it was right there in the yes. middle of the hearings. Needless to say, it was an interesting time to talk about the court. <laughs> and, and it's I'm, more interesting now, Adam. That's the crazy thing. Well, you it read got my mind. <laughs> yeah, it never ends. And you've, we'll talk about recent history and a little bit further back in history, given that you've been covering the court for a long time, even day to day on the beat at Slate. But Dally, let me just start with a very general question. How would you describe the Supreme Court's place in government and politics today? And is that its proper place? Holy cow, that's a big opener. I would certainly say it is this absolutely massively important, probably too important institution that the framers did not intend to become a juggernaut, and it is. And I think for good and for bad, it has inserted itself into the beating heart of every hot button policy issue of the day. And we can debate normatively whether that's right or wrong, but I think descriptively it's true. It is certainly not, I think we could say, what the framers intended. There's a lot to unpack in there. And two things jumped out at me at first. One is describing the court as too important. And maybe we'll talk about that first. But then second, the way you describe the court's interactions with government and politics. The court was conceived of as sort of a a passive body that would receive cases and decide them. In fact, Tocqueville, when he wrote about the court in the early 19th century, said that's one of the reasons why the court is successful, is that it doesn't thrust itself into politics. And I gather that you think the court is now doing more of that. It's asserting itself into politics and governance in, in, in ways that it shouldn't. It's not just that it's receiving too many cases and deciding too many cases. It's that Maybe that's part of it, but it's asserting itself too much. So why don't we unpack that? What, what do you mean by too important? Well, and let's be very clear, right? We had 53 merits decisions at the end of this term. Yeah. It's the lowest number, I think, since when? I can't remember. But even when I started covering the court, there'd be 90 merits yeah. decisions. So I just want to be, I don't want to nitpick Adam, but I do want to sure. say the number of cases bracket the shadow docket, which is itself a whole question that I think unanticipated consequences. But I, I don't want to say that the number of cases that it decides is 
somehow historically out of whack. I think the number of cases is really low and it's declined significantly in a few decades. Yeah, I'd say maybe 15 years before you started covering the court, it would have been not only well over 100. I mean, it would have been in the about halfway between 100 and 200 probably. Absolutely. The court used to sit in the afternoons. The court, I mean, they were very busy bees and it has been shrinking. The docket has been shrinking and certainly the merits opinions are shrinking. And I think, again, we've seen this rise in the shadow docket. But that aside, I think we are both agreeing that the court for the first hundred years of the Republic was not leaping into every hot button social issue that was faced. And in fact, as you said, I think was very passively receiving appeals, having established that it got to do that, right? This is John Marshall, that it was not, I think, viewed as the ultimate arbiter of every big question. And I think, again, we're agreeing that did the framers expect that abortion and guns and affirmative action and contraception and how we vote and gerrymandering was all going to be, that's just in a year. That is new. And whether that's good or bad, I guess, is the gravamen of your question. And that, I think the answer is both. For the first century of the court's work, it didn't have a whole lot of say in what cases it would decide. It It would receive appeals. It would receive appeals from the lower federal courts and from state Supreme Courts, and it would decide the cases. About a century ago, the Supreme Court got what we all know now as cert jurisdiction, where more and more of the court's docket was discretionary. There were arguments then, and even, I guess, when Reagan took office, that the court was too overworked and there needed to be more buffers to just ease back the justice's own workloads. And the past really is a foreign country because now the docket is is so small. So they're deciding fewer cases than ever, but somehow it looms more largely in our politics, the cases that it decides. I mean, the whole political world just sort of pauses usually in late June, early July to see what the Supreme Court's going to decide. And somehow the term always ends with these blockbusters, whether it was the travel ban or the latest abortion-related cases or same-sex marriage and, and so on. If I could ask you to think back to when you started covering this in in 1999, does it feel different now than even relative to then? You joined Slate right before Bush v. Gore. I was looking back at your earliest articles there, and it's not as though the court wasn't busy. It wasn't controversial. But I don't know. Does it it seem different now? For one thing, you're making me feel really old. Um, (laughs) Well, me too. (laughs) um, In one sense, I would say... Even when I first started covering the court, I felt that there was something quite profoundly out of whack with the ways in which it did its business from October until the last week in June, and that the public tuned in for those last two weeks in June for the blockbusters, and it was like a jack-in-the-box. I mean, the court was hearing cases, nobody much cared. The court was deciding cases all year, nobody much cared. And then for those last two weeks in June, you're exactly right, the American public, I think then as now, becomes tunnel-visioned, and the court is the only thing that matters but only those cases that are decided in that window are the things that mattered. And you lose all of the things that have come out in January and February. And so I think that was probably a critique 
I had then. And I would even go further and say, and here I am throwing my colleagues in the press corps under the bus, that the curtain raiser pieces we wrote in September very much overdetermined what the big ticket cases were. And sometimes Mm. we chose poorly. We didn't always pick the right consequential cases, but the way we all almost colluded, and I don't think, I don't want to sound nefarious. I just think we would all write these curtain raisers that would say, these are the six cases to watch. And sometimes because they had interesting facts and nothing else. But I think that that also really shapes the way the public then consumes the work of the court, because when those cases get decided, whether or not they're the most important cases of the term, they get treated as such. And so I think in a way, it's a kind of natural experiment in how the press corps partly contributes to that narrative that those are the cases to watch, because every year we miss one. Every year we miss something important. What do you suppose the public misses then when they see the court through these lenses of the, of the curtain raiser and the big, I love the metaphor, the, the jack-in-the-box decisions at the end. If a member of sort of an educated lay reader followed the court from the big conference in September all the way through to the end of the year, and, and I guess even through the summer, how would they come to see the court differently? Well, I think there's one purely political answer, which is, and this is the one I think from Justice Breyer to Justice Alito, you would hear from the court itself, which is we are too hyper-focused on the five fours, that we pick the cases that are going to be those hot button, angry, lots of mudslinging cases, and that we forget that, you know, this is the number Justice Breyer always throws around, you know, 90% of the cases are decided, you know, eight to one or nine zero, and that it elides how consensus-based and how simple and how really apolitical the court is. And it's very that's a story that the justices across the spectrum tell, that the court is way too hyper-focused on the 5-4 decisions. Now, that's in some ways totally disingenuous because, you know, just nobody really cares about the, you know, maritime law case that was 9-0 when you have abortion and and guns on the docket. But so I do think there is a political answer, which means that we tell over and over again the story of a very partisan 5-4 court. And we've been doing that, by the way, when it was Sandra Day O'Connor, who was a swing vote, and then Anthony Kennedy, and now that it's the chief, and that that's not a story politically that the court wants told. So again, I think it's descriptively true that this court is very, very, very polarized, more so than I've ever seen, and that it's angrier than I've ever seen. But it's also, I think, descriptively true that we miss all the ways in which much of what the court does, unlike the other branches, is not partisan. It's not political. It's just reading statutes and trying to understand the Constitution. And so I think, again, because we focus on those five, four stories because they're interesting and they're salient. And I'm not going to say they're not consequential, but I do think we end up telling a story that's very, very political as opposed to legal. And I guess I would just add parenthetically that when you talk to judges, I'm sure you've had this experience, the thing they hate most 
any Article Three judge, I think, would tell you what they do not want in your story is the line that says appointed by Reagan, appointed right. by Bush, appointed by Clinton. They feel as though that vaults you into a political narrative about the court in which you lose more than you gain. You know, I want to ask you about a, a few of the justices in particular, but I can't help but stay on this point about the storytelling side of it more. As a journalist covering the court, what's the hardest part about your job in terms of conveying the court's work to the public? Because again, Slate is not a law journal, right? Your readers, you have a lot of readers who are specialists, but Slate's readers in general are by and large educated lay people, non-lawyers who are interested in politics, interested in constitutionalism and governance and, and everything else in culture. What's the hardest part about conveying the court's work to them? And let's put in liberal, just because I think we should, oh. in the interest of full disclosure, say that it's a, a pretty left-leaning publication. Sure. You know, I think it's such a good question, and I've thought about it a lot. And I think it's really changed. When I started covering the court, Slate and Salon were the only two online magazines in the world of their sort. And so I was this intrepid young, I had to file at 3 p.m. You know, that was crazy. The rest of the press corps was doing, you know, either print or, you know, some of them were doing radio or TV news, but there wasn't this need for speed, right? Yeah. There was, so everybody would go and sit around in the cafeteria, all my colleagues, and they'd talk about what's the story and how do we get this right? And they'd shape it a little bit together. And I'd be off writing and I was a demon because I filed at three. And now I'm the old grumpy man because like literally <laughs> I file at killing myself to file at noon and there's a hundred stories up already. And so I think the first thing that's really happened and it dovetails with the second thing is the collapse of the news cycle. And how do you possibly, when people are tweeting, you know, Justice Scalia's five biggest neck punches, like what are the three biggest burns in RBG, when that stuff is getting disseminated five minutes after the opinion comes down, yeah. then it's really, really substantially harder to do good work, right? To read 120 pages and add value. And I will tell you anecdotally, what I think we have lost and this is the hard part of my job, is that the piece that you did on Friday where you thought about it and you said, huh, this is what King B. Burwell actually meant. This is what mattered. Yeah. That's gone. Nobody wants to read that piece. Your, your editor doesn't want to run it. Yeah. And so I think that the speed and trying to push through the speed, Adam, and to do good work with let's be honest, you know, opinions that are longer than they were 20 years ago and to not make errors, that's a piece of it. And then I think at least somewhat adjacent to this, how do you do this in a culture that wants you to do it now? You know, sitting in the chair at CNN at 11 a.m., flipping through the opinion, trying to get it right. That's just bad. It's bad for journalism. It's bad for the court. But then I think, and this is the good part, but it is an anxiety provoking part is the rise of the academic legal blogger, right? The rise of the Eugene Volokhs and the Rick Hassans and all of the extraordinary people who are doing in real time what the press corps used to do, right? They used to put it in a law review and be like, ha ha ha, see you in 72 years when you get that piece <laughs> printed. That's over, right? They're yeah. blogging in real time. And by the way, like, they wrote a treatise on the First Amendment. Like, I got nothing compared yeah. to that. 
And so I think one of the real anxieties that I sense over time has been how do I add value when the people who are positioned to do this better than me inherently are already doing it better and faster than me? And what is the thing that I can add to this given that like every single time you can go to sentencing law blog and just read it and it's better than anything I did. So I think that's become the speed and also just the flooding of the zone with real experts have been the two things that are hard. And I guess maybe the conclusion to all that is how do you find as technology is changing, as the news cycle is changing, as experts are doing your work better than you could, how do you find a lane for yourself that still matters? And so that's a huge broad answer, but I think all of those anxieties are sort of braided together. Yeah, I suppose for, for you and, and others who, who cover the court, apart from the, the law professors and others, I mean, the role that you're playing is bringing all of this beyond the little stovepipes of, I mean, with all due respect to Rick Haston or, or the Volokh folks and everything, out of their little sort of stovepipe, whether it's a subject matter stovepipe like the election law blog, or more or less an ideological stovepipe like, like Volokh, which is very libertarian, and trying to take the court's work as a whole and convey it to the public outside of those realms. I mean, ultimately, the court's legitimacy is bound up in what the public at large, how it sees the work of the court. You know, for me, I was reading you from probably not 1999, but probably pretty close after that, 2000, at least 2001, if not earlier. One of the things that's so different now than then is just the sheer amount of primary documents online that you can, you can link very quickly to I mean, anything, audio, transcripts, briefs, thanks to SCOTUS blog, especially now the Supreme Court's website, all of that, that you're able to connect the readers with the actual material, right? 10 years before you started, you know, you'd pick up a Linda Greenhouse's account of a Supreme Court decision in the New York Times, and you would never actually get the opinion yourself. It just wasn't accessible. Now you're able to connect your readers and Slate being one of the first digital native publications was able to really help pioneer that. And now we sort of take it for granted that we can just go get the opinions ourselves. Now I'm just meandering, but the technology you have at your disposal is so much different now than it was when you started. And also just to lean into that a tiny bit, because I think, you know, in 1999, when people asked me what was different about writing online, I think I was one of the first online journalists credential to be in the chamber. And I used to say these sort of lofty aspirational things about how important those primary documents were, that it was really an essential part of my job to be able to link to the blue brief and say, read it Mm -hmm. yourself. And I was so naive in that I thought online journalism was going to allow people to go deeper. Yeah, same here. (laughs) Holy cow, was I wrong about that. And that's been, you know, one of the places where I've just had to sort of disabuse myself of the idea that simply because you link to things means that people will read it. I mean, nine times out of 10, people don't read past the headline. But again, I guess this is where I would say this is one of the really, I think, psychologically interesting things about being in that press corps, which is... I sometimes describe it as Patty Hearst syndrome. Like we're so in love with our captors, right? These nine jurists, we're completely obsessed with them. At our worst, we're just really hoping to get a one-on-one with one of them. And we can form our writing, I think, in some instances to do that. But also, and I guess it goes back to your original question, 
we really believe in the institution. Like if we were straight up political writers, we'd cover the White House, like we'd cover Congress. So I think there is this deep abiding respect for the institution that means that even when they take away our audio and they take away our Apple watches and they won't let us bring anything but a pen and a you know notepad in as though it's still 1804, we're so damn grateful. Like we really love them. And we deeply believe that first story, which is that the court is different. It's not political. And we are so steeped in that. Even I think in the face of our editor saying, put it in your story, whether you know Clinton appointed or Reagan appointed, that we do a lot of work to tell that narrative about how the court is different, it is oracular, it is not a political branch, the justices are different. 90% of the opinions are 8-1 or 9-0. So I think in some ways we're really beholden to that story because it gives our work meaning. And because if we were just completely cynical about everything, we couldn't do this work. And I think, again, I, I feel like I keep saying to you, it's for good and for bad. I think yeah. that means that we, in a lot of ways that are essential and important, and I do believe, bar none, this is the smartest, most amazing press corps in the country. But I do think we spend a lot of energy trying to tell that story about the court as bipartisan and everybody gets along and there's no grudges and everybody works to triangulate against this constitution. Sometimes they may differ. I don't know that that always serves, but I do know that that is a really entrenched ethos for most of the press corps, at least the people who are in the building covering it. And I guess I would just say there's a lot of critics of that. There are a lot of people who say, oh, freaking stop pretending. You know, you guys know this institution better than everyone. Just tell us. And you're just taking dictation and sort of giving tongue baths to these egomaniacs. And please stop. Tell us the truth. So I, I think we live in the interstices of those two stories about the court. And it's not super easy. So a moment ago, you said, you know, a lot of readers of any publication, they don't make it past the headline. One of your recent headlines that jumped out at me was from the end of the term, it was July 9th. And you and Mark Joseph Stern wrote a piece titled, The Political Genius of John Roberts. Let's talk about Chief Justice Roberts for a bit. And my first question is, when you refer to his political genius, do you mean that as a compliment or a criticism? I know that it sounds like a criticism, but I actually mean it as a compliment. And that piece was a follow-on to a piece that we did a year earlier that was almost the same, maybe even the same headline, that essentially said he is an absolute sorcerer when it comes to seeding a media narrative that both makes him look good and makes the court as an institution look good. And he's doing it increasingly in the face of a really angry court a court that is acting out on his watch. And I actually really mean it that he is, I think this is going to sound squishy and psychobabbly, but I think like as EQ justices go, he has a sense of the room, of the other justices, of the American public, of government writ large, of what the populace needs to hear to feel okay about the court that is 
off any chart I have ever seen in a jurist. And so even though I may not agree with some of the, and I think that article probably delves into how I think he played us a little in, say, June Medical, but I absolutely mean it as a compliment when I say I think he is masterful at this. I remember you returned to the June Medical case. This is an abortion-related case, and I'll maybe we'll circle back to it if we have time. Here's the headline of this one. John Roberts' stealth attack on abortion rights just paid off. And the point being that the way the public might have received the original June Medical Services case, which was the second of the Supreme Court's recent cases on, I mean, how would you characterize what that case is about? It's about regulation of abortion clinics, I would say, on public efforts to promote the, the health and safety of abortion clinics. Not everybody would share that characterization. I, yeah, I would, probably, I would probably <laughs> say to close clinics, yeah. but... I think we could agree that it's substantially the same case as Holman's Health. And in some sense, the only question was stare decisis, right? That was the only thing. I mean, maybe I guess we could quibble about whether Louisiana and Texas had different regulations. This is only an hour-long podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's a kind of interesting quibble, but I think that Roberts did exactly the thing that you and I would laud him for, which is instead of overturning a case three years later that's the identical case and getting this as an election issue that everybody was screaming about. He just said like shruggy emoji, stare decisis. Yeah. And as you point out in the, in this follow-up article that came out later in the summer, that as other states have their own regulations and those regulations are challenged and they flow up through court, some of them are going to withstand scrutiny at the lower court level. And your the point you make in your article, forgive me if I get it wrong, is that well, Chief Justice Roberts said that they weren't overturning whole women's health. He framed his own opinion very, very carefully, and his opinion was what we'd call the controlling opinion. And it perhaps left more doors open for regulation than people might have recognized at first glance. And this gets back to what you described as his political genius. It's part of it, at least, is the way in which he manages both sort of the coalitions that form a majority, the way he, in that process, sort of helps manage the content and tone of the majority opinion has a real impact on both the way the court's work is perceived and also with the substance of the court's work. The reason why I asked if you said political genius is a compliment or a criticism, I mean, among my conservative friends, if you refer to John Roberts's political genius, political radar, whatever, they don't see that as a compliment. They say his job, like everybody else's on the court, is to just apply the law. And to the extent that he's ever thinking in terms of politics, he's actually going beyond the duty and limits of the court. But Adam, that has to be wrong. He's the chief. And I think at least it has to be demonstrably clear that he has a responsibility that the associate justices do not share, which is to protect the integrity, the reputational interests, and the public confidence in the courts. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Maybe it is, but I think that he sees himself as, you know, sort of a straight line from John Marshall. By the way, he it goes through William H. Rehnquist, right, who he clerked for, where Rehnquist, too, modulated his views in cases, right, because he thought as chief he had an additional axis on which to think, which isn't just what does the law say or, you know, how do I read this statute? But how does the public feel about the judiciary writ large when I do what I do? And that's why we still have Miranda rights. And thank you, you know, Chief Justice 
William Rehnquist. And that's why I think the census case failed. And so I think we could fight about whether John Roberts is acting politically when he does things that protect public respect for and regard for the court. But I don't think it's wrong that as the chief, he does have that extra burden. And at least John Roberts, I think, has always openly said he sees himself as tasked with doing that. Yeah, he said from time to time, he said in his conference room, there's four of the chief justices' portraits on the walls for the the four greats. I suppose that would be Marshall, Taft, Hughes, and maybe Warren's the fourth, I can't remember. And he says that they look down on me, like they're judging me. And, and he feels that. But you mentioned Rehnquist. It's funny you mentioned Rehnquist and Miranda, especially. And getting ready for our conversation, I went back to look at the very, be- I clicked all the way through to the very beginning of your Slate archives. And maybe the third or fourth piece that's listed there, and who knows if in the passage of time, the, the archives have lost some of your pieces, but... Making me feel old again, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, well, the third or fourth piece that you wrote was about the Dickerson case where Rehnquist shocks everybody after having criticized Miranda, this 1960s case on the rights of criminal suspects. He'd criticized that decision as an extra-constitutional assertion by the court. But then in this 2000 decision, he reaffirms it against attack and says, no, this has now taken on the weight of precedent in a constitutional rule that we're not just going to set aside. And that really is the Rehnquist being one of those rare justices who served as both the associate justice and the chief and who went about his work, it seemed very differently with the associate than as the chief. He's always sort of the test case or the paradigmatic case of what differentiates a chief from an associate justice in their institutional vision. You said earlier that you and I agree on this. Yeah, we would. My view of it is that the chief necessarily takes on these interests that James Madison wrote, you know, in Federalist 51, that ambition will counteract ambition and the interests of the man will be attached to the rights of the place. And to the extent that that's been attenuated almost everywhere else in government, for the chief justice, it's always been true, and it probably always will be true, that the chief justice associates with his institution more than anybody else. His name is kind of on the door, right? The Roberts Court, the Taft Court, the Warren Court. And the extra powers that the chief justice has in terms of assigning opinions, managing the court, although as Chief Justice Roberts says, if you pull on the reins too hard, you'll find that they're not attached to anything. These small extra powers that the chief justice has They're both a power and then a burden because he has to exercise them. And I think the political weight of the court's work is most clearly felt through those tools of the chief justices. My belief is that almost all chief justices are shaped by the institution more than they shape it. The exceptions are the famous ones, you know, Marshall, Warren, Taft. But for almost all the others, the institution ends up shaping the occupant in interesting ways. And that's my take on it anyway. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think not just the institution, but the times, right? I mean, I think there's no question that Brown v. Board shaped everything, right? That's not just the court. That's just the moment. And I think, oh boy, we're going to agree again. But I think that the court is by necessity responsive to the times. And so I think that shapes a chief justice. And I would even say, I can't believe we've gone 35 minutes and 20 seconds and not said Donald J. Trump. But I would say in this particular instance, I don't think anyone would dispute that had Donald Trump not been president and had he not engaged in three years of pretty systemic attacks on Article Three judges, John Roberts might have been a different chief altogether. And I think not only is he 
modulating against, you know, having a particularly fractious court in a particularly fractious moment. And as you said, I think modulating against his obligations as chief to protect the institution. But I think he is very much a different person as a consequence of having sat through that entire impeachment trial. And I think that has profoundly shaped the way he's behaved. But I do think that Trump and Trumpism and particularly Trump's rhetoric around the court and how fragile John Roberts perceives the court to be has very, very much inflected upon how he conducts himself. And probably reluctantly, Adam, I don't think, you know, he he particularly likes having to punch back at the president because the president says intemperate things about judges. But I do think it's it's happening. So a lot's been said and written about John Roberts in the last year. I think the cliche at this point is this is the year that he truly became the chief justice or Let's talk about another famous justice on the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Over the course of the summer, you wrote a few articles about her law school classmates. There's no shortage of attention paid to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In the last few years, it's just been really amazing to to see how she's become an icon of sorts. How should we understand her role? What's her legacy on the court and in politics? I think part of the reason we did this deep, months-long piece of reporting that, by the way, predated COVID, and so It was weird to put it out in the middle of all the mayhem of the summer, but it was essentially this exploration of the 10 women that started Harvard with her at the law school in a class of hundreds and hundreds of men. And we just wanted to track them down. And in some sense, we wanted to test this hypothesis that was, could any one of them have turned out to be RBG? And some of the women pretty expressly told us in interviews or their families told us if they were deceased, yeah, had she been married to Marty Ginsburg, she'd have been, you know, like, so there, that was just interesting to me. And so we went back and we interviewed them and we did a deep dive and we tracked down one who had quit and nobody knew where she was. So it's an amazing piece of work or kind of archival work. But I think just in response to your question, what it confirmed for me is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the most conservative liberal that I have ever encountered. (laughs) And that this iconic role that she has come to play, probably in the wake of her Hobby Lobby descent and in the wake of, you know, she she has become quite a different character, even in the time I've watched her on the court. The Redding case, the strip search case is one that I throw down as a, when I carbon date how she started to change. But I think that the thing that we just misapprehend about her in the tote bags and the votive candles and the t-shirts and the earrings is that she actually, for her entire career, was unbelievably small c conservative, both in her approach to law school, which is one of the things we learned putting together the, the podcast and the print piece, but also how she brought cases when she was at the ACLU, you know, Women's Rights Project, and how she judged at the D.C. Circuit, right? The person, the people she agreed with more than almost anyone on the D.C. Circuit were Justice, then Judge Scalia, and then Judge Bork. And so I think somehow, and this is where I, I do a little bit fault the hagiography that has kind of arisen around her that you're flicking at, is that I think we deserve her entire story, including her story at the Supreme Court, 
by suggesting she's this badass lefty rapper, iconic, you know, notorious RBG who's just throwing down and getting into fight. That's just not how she has ever conducted her life. And to the extent that she's changed somewhat in the last decade, you know, we can say that I think she's probably more unconstrained and more apt to write in inflammatory prose, but she's really conservative. And I think one of the things I've always wanted to highlight is that at every turn in her career, including most of her career at the Supreme Court, given the chance to do the small C conservative thing or the radical thing, she would always go with door number one. And I I hate that we've lost that story because I think it's, I mean, I know you and I have talked before about how we find our way to talking to each other. And I think it's a cartoon that she and Justice Scalia were best friends, but it's also really true. (laughs) And they adored each other. And I hate losing that. Adalia, I have to admit, when you referred to Justice Ginsburg as a conservative liberal on the court, I was very curious to see where you're going to go with that. Because on the current court, I think of Kagan and Breyer as being more conservative in some respects. In other recent justices, Souter seems kind of conservative liberal of, of sorts. What exactly do you mean when you call her conservative in that respect? Were you referring to just how careful she was and making decisions? Was there a political component to it? What did you mean by that? No political component. What I really meant, I tried to sort of gather all that up when I said small c conservative, because I think there is no doubt that she and Sonia Sotomayor are far to the left by any metric politically of Kagan and Breyer. But I mean, in terms of I mean, some just pure character thing. I think it's not an accident that she's an opera fan. She's too young, believe it or not, to be an opera fan. So was Scalia, by the way. Like, they are really... Do you remember when... Who was it that first took a knee? Why can't I remember? Colin yeah, Kaepernick? Yeah, yes. Colin Kaepernick. She was the one, right, a year ago, who said it was unseemly that Colin oh, yeah. Kaepernick yeah, took a knee. She is, she is not, by temperament, a radical. So yeah, I should have made really clear that I don't mean that she is politically to the right of Stephen Breyer. That's clearly wrong. But what I do mean is that I think she conducted her entire career doing tiny, incremental, very, very palatable parens to men litigation to try to do radical things. And I think there's real value in that. And again, this is my Patty Hearst syndrome, but (laughs) I am sufficiently enamored of doing things in careful, lawyerly, linear, civil, like all these words that I'm saying that have no meaning anymore. But to me, I hate that that part of her has been all but erased from the popular biography. And I I think here's where I would just say, you know, we forget that at her confirmation hearing, the women's rights groups all hated her. They were opposed Mm. to her. They thought she was way too conservative. They thought that most of what she had done at the ACLU was kind of get along, shift along with the power that be. Women's rights groups thought she was a terrible choice by and large. And I think that that conversation on the left matters. And I'm a little bit sad that it's been obliterated in service to what I think is just kind of 
not a truthful story about the kind of lawyer she was and even, I think, the kind of jurist she has been. In the Rehnquist-Roberts era, I've always thought it's been an interesting cycle in that the senior most Democratic appointed justice, well, actually, when it's Stevens, I guess he was a Republican justice, we'll just say senior most liberal justice, they take on real outsized weight within the court and the view of the court, right? From Brennan and then Marshall, you think of Blackman, right? His, his dissents late in his career where he says, I'll no longer was a tinker with the machinery of death, I think he said in the yeah. capital punishment cases. And then it came on to even Souter, Stevens. And then when Stevens left the court, it was Ginsburg. And so she sort of naturally took on that role. And around the same time, for me, the turning point with her was the Lily Ledbetter decision. In a couple of ways. One was it was, you know, sex discrimination. And so it was it just fit her career arc, the story of her life so well. And also her opinion, you know, calling for congressional reform succeeded and maybe put a little wind in her sails. I, I don't know. I don't want to keep you too long. Let me ask you one more question. Who's the most misunderstood justice that you've covered? I think Clarence Thomas Barnum. Really? Why is that? Well, I guess again. The water I swim in is is largely the left. And I think that some of the really unseemly critiques of him as, you know, a second Scalia or not very smart or, you know, sleeping through argument. I mean, I just think they're all wrong. And I think that even on the right, not the savvy right, but I just think there is a failure to apprehend not just, you know, the intellect and the passion and the zeal he brings to it, but also just the scope of the project, Adam. I mean, this is a man who has a fully worked out, intricate, radically different constitutional worldview. And that almost across the spectrum, that's not really fully credited to him. And so I just think there's the personal piece of it, which is I think everybody thinks he's kind of grumpy. And of course, you know, as well as I do that any clerk who has ever clerked at the court when asked who the warmest, most generous, most gregarious person who remembers the name of every single person in the building, everyone says that's Clarence Thomas stipulated. That story never gets out in the world. But I also just think as a purely doctrinal architect. This is a very, very serious project. And it pains me that people don't credit him with that. I'm going to cheat and ask one last question, and then we'll go. In a nutshell, what are you most excited about watching and covering in the year ahead? I don't know that the word excitement now is operative in my world. Like it's (laughs) one of my least despairing about because I I do really worry about the election. I mean, I just am deeply, deeply worried both that there will not be a free and fair election, that there's going to be a thousand baby Bush v. Gores, that nobody is going to accept the outcome of the election, that if and when somebody calls it on the evening of November 3rd, we may be weeks away from knowing what actually happened. And I think I worry deeply that Americans continue to have a set of really magical thinking about, you know, everyone's going to go to the ballot and everyone's going to vote and all the votes are going to be counted and there's going to be a winner. And I just think in every single valence of how confident we are about the vote, that has been eroded, profoundly eroded. So 
I don't know that I'm excited to cover it, but I, I do have a deep sense that not only in the run-up to November, are there going to be just an awful lot of midnight <laughs> COVID-related shadow ducket one-line orders from the court that are going to, in my view, probably circumscribe the franchise in states that matter. But also, I just really do think that between the president's attacks on mail-in voting and increasingly claims that the election's going to be stolen, and, you know, Hillary Clinton told Joe Biden this week, whatever happens, don't concede, right? I mean, I don't mean to be a both-siderist, but I do think the rhetoric on both sides in this case is working really hard to destabilize public confidence in the election. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that I am perseverating on is how do we simultaneously talk about what are going to be like long lines and thrown out ballots and voter ID and all the stuff that is serious and also not lead people to believe that their vote is pointless. In other words, I think we have this really complicated job as court watchers, which is to describe without, maybe this goes back to how we started, right? We have an institution that is so precious, that is so utterly dependent on public confidence, that is the court. And we as journalists are always kind of zinging back and forth between describing it accurately and realistically, and also really thinking it's precious. There's no plan B, we have to preserve it. And I would say, I would apply all that analysis to the election, which is, I think, it's fragile, right? The whole possibility that this is a free and fair election is fragile. And I think as particularly as court watchers, legal journalists, lawyers, we have a responsibility both to describe what's going on and also to absolutely convince people that it matters and that there can be fair outcomes and that there can be determinative clear winners and losers. And I, I think that's a really, I know I just like went super existential in the last 30 seconds, but I do think if we're not thinking about that as a problem, that we should be. Well, I feel like we've used up our hour on agreements. I need to have you back sometime and we can spend an hour on our disagreements. Let's just do June Medical, a whole hour <laughs> on June Medical. I, I will come back. And if we agree then, then there will be bourbon. Thank, thank you. you. No, thank you so much for joining us. Our guest for this episode has been Dahlia Lithwick. She's a senior editor at Slate Reader Articles and tune into the podcast, Amicus. And thanks as always to everybody for joining us. Please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential. Unprecedential.